Before we begin, I want to say that this episode was recorded and edited before the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd by a white police officer. Our next episode will speak more directly to political protest, activism, and racism. Until then, the four of us at Commonplace are with the protesters, some in body on the streets and some working from afar, and we'll post links to protester bailout funds in our newsletter and on our website. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of Commonplace, the third in our series of global roll call episodes. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. I'm recording this introduction in Scarborough, Maine. I want to start with this message I received from listener Dan Alter. Later in the episode, you'll also hear from listeners Natalie Solmer and from Gordon. Hi, Rachel. This is Dan Alter a poet from Berkeley, California. I'm an electrician, and I appreciate that you invited your listeners to chime in. I listened to the podcast at work. I wrote you that a couple of years ago. And I just went back to work last week when California opened up construction again. So I've also had experiences like many in the commonplace community, it sounds like. I've really enjoyed the peacefulness and the slowing down of things, even though it's been eerie. It's been very dear to have the couple of months to tuck in with my wife and daughter and cook and garden and also for me to dive into my next manuscript. And I think like many others, I've had my own disappointment as a writer because my first collection, which was due out from Eyewear Press this November, is being postponed until at least sometime next year. But mostly I wanted to add my voice about having a job that can't be done from home and what it's like to be back at work at that kind of job. The choice to not work and not um, have income or work and take the risk of getting COVID-19 is a weird, it's an awful choice. You know, we don't have the big things that would make it safer, the testing and contract tracing that uh, better functioning societies have gotten up and running. And because of the reasons we all know, we're not going to have those things, at least for the near term. So I either have to go face that amorphous risk or not have money coming in. And what occurred to me this week is that this is really just a a heightened version of the bottom line of being a construction worker, which is you put your body on the line so you can earn your living and really so you can serve the needs of the system based on profits. And the pandemic is just 
throwing that into relief, just like it's doing with every other fault line of our crappy societies. So my dispatch is about being back at work and the contractors trying to cobble together some kind of safety protocol. Everyone's wearing a mask. They take our temperature with a heat gun every morning. There's a laborer wiping down door handles and faucets. And some people want to talk about how it's strange and makes us anxious. And some people want to just try to ignore it. You know, even the whole world is turned upside down, but here we are doing the same old things, splicing the wires and putting up the lights. And people are more or less glad to have their jobs for now. I wish I could say that I'm taking this risk and to do something essential like build an emergency hospital or a testing lab, but that isn't the case. And I'm thinking a lot these days about the unfathomable economic meltdown that we're headed into and what looks to me like just enormous fights that will be needed to turn things in a better direction in the time to come. And finally, I want to say that in the meantime, poems are doing for me what they've always done, which is they they keep a space, a corner in my life of aliveness and light. And I, I'm still loving whatever chances I get to make my own lines land in the right spot. And I love getting to read other people's. So thank you for letting me share my thoughts. Thank you so much for calling in. Everyone at Commonplace wishes you safety on the construction site and more time with your wife, more time for gardening, for resting, for making and reading poems. Huge congratulations on your first forthcoming book. We look forward to its arrival in the world. A few days ago, it was announced that more than 100,000 people have died in the United States from COVID-19. It's almost certain that tragic milestone was reached weeks earlier and that the number of COVID-related deaths is much higher than currently reported. We still have little idea of what the length and depth of the economic meltdown that will certainly affect Dan and all the rest of us will be. Nor do I think we have any clear idea about the mental and non-fatal physical COVID-related costs of this pandemic. We don't know yet how COVID-19 will change the way we live, work, socialize, educate, date, cook, travel, or make art. Dan's message touches on questions I've struggled with for my entire adult life, and for which I have no answers. What is and isn't work? Is making art work? Why do we call what artists make artwork? Is there any truly ethical way to participate in capitalism? Is there any way to live without participating in capitalism? Is poetry or any art form outside capitalism? Should art be outside capitalism? Can we, as M. Norbessi Philip challenged us, 
even imagine something other than capitalism? Why do I love to be paid for my work? Why did I pick this path, poetry, in which it is not possible to make a living? Why do I keep banging my head against the wall of this impossibility? Most, but not all, poets teach. What kind of labor is that? What about emotional labor, caretaking labor, spiritual labor, self-care? These are almost always unpaid, but certainly vital to what is essential work. Even if we accept that poetry will never make us money, never a living wage, can we make art without falling into capitalism's voracious tyranny of thought? How can we make art without turning ourselves into factories? Thank you, C.A. Conrad, for this formulation. How can we write poems which, as Dan says, keep a space of aliveness and light without falling into the very understandable mindset of competition around the scarcity economy of journal publication, book publication, how our books are selling, how many copies are printed, prizes, teaching jobs, while also honoring our ambition, our desire to reach others, to build literary communities, to enlarge the social and aesthetic imagination, to sustain ourselves and our communities so that we might have time to draw and paint and dance and write and wander and sleep and eat and plant things and dream. In this episode, you'll hear from listeners and commonplace guests who are working, although some of them don't use the word work to describe what they are doing. These folks are reading and making things, sometimes in new ways or forms or with different attitudes. Some are writing because it soothes them to go deeper rather than to avoid. Some write or read for distraction or to silence ghosts. I invite you, listener, to listen to these dispatches with an open heart, to allow yourselves to be inspired, bothered, provoked, consoled. But try to avoid comparing yourselves negatively to any of these artists. If you are not writing right now, either because you are working to make a living or doing the vital but almost always unpaid labor of caretaking, or because of whatever reason you just aren't right now, that's okay. Speaking of work, I want to say a few words about how commonplace works. This podcast is a labor of love. It is labor and it is love. And I haven't found a way to make it outside the confines of capitalism. It's essential that commonplace is free for anyone who wants and needs it. It is not, however, free to make. I pay three people, Jay Hammond, Doreen Wang, and Christine LaRusso to help me produce, sound edit, publicize, and distribute the show. This would not be possible without you. Your listenership, your one-time donations, and monthly patron support. Several publishers provide free galleys or books to Commonplace for review or for distribution to members of the Commonplace Book Club. Other than patron support and these free books, we have no sources of funding, no institutional affiliation, no ads, and no corporate sponsorship. The money raised from patrons does not quite cover what I pay Jay, Doreen, and Christine, 
and I do not currently pay myself. I mention this in order to be transparent about what it means for Commonplace, for me, and for folks wanting to make a podcast like Commonplace. I also mention it because I want to reiterate my enormous gratitude to all of you who have contributed money, support, and encouragement over the years. I know so many of us are struggling with work these days. If you have appreciated this podcast and have some ability to give, please consider doing so. In this episode, you'll hear from a few more listeners and from former Commonplace guests Molly Peacock, Alicia Joe Rabins, D.A. Powell, Rosa Alcala, Bernadette Mayer, Lainey Brown, John Bewin, Darcy Steinke, Kristen Prevalet, Stephanie Burt, and Rita Dove. You can find bios for all of these artists and links to their most recent work in our show notes and on our website, commonpodcast.com, where you can also find links to the people and texts mentioned in this episode and where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes out once per episode and usually contains a few extra photos and news. Okay, I'm going to start with the audio of a short video that Molly Peacock sent me. This video will be posted in full on our Vimeo channel. Hello, this is Molly Peacock. And thank you so much, Rachel, for giving me a chance to make this commonplace update. Thank you for all your hard work on this fabulous, fabulous podcast. So my COVID-19 update is that I'm here in Toronto, sheltering in place with my husband, the James Joyce scholar, Michael Groden. And there are two aspects uh, to this crisis and condition we're in. And one is the exterior, the incredible anxiety that people have about their economic lives and about their health. I'm not going to talk about that, except to say that we are both 72, so we're in the age category, but we're both healthy, despite the fact that my husband is a 10-time cancer survivor, and I am uh, an experienced caregiver, shall we say but it's the interior that I want to mention because suddenly we are all hidden away and lots of people are worried about what are they going to do all day long beside watching videos. But poets understand that this is exactly the condition for creativity. Any imaginative person and I'm going to gamble and say that that means everyone. Many people think they don't have imaginations, but they've misplaced them. For those of you who know you have one, to be able to shelter in place, to be able to have the time, if not to write or paint or dance or compose, and then to have the time simply to be and to feel your being as it sifts down away from all the busyness in your life. And you're with a limited number of people in a limited palette. That is the condition for creativity. And I, for one, in this strange way, 
feel it's the upside of sheltering in place. I'm sheltering my imaginative spirit, and I'm grateful for it. When I first saw Molly's video, I wondered if it might rub someone the wrong way. I know, in part from gathering these updates, that there are many people not able to make creative work right now, not able to read or concentrate, people who have imaginations and know it, but have been overwhelmed by caretaking responsibilities or by anxiety. People who need right now to prioritize money-making work over anything creative. But I love Molly's enthusiasm, her signature straightforwardness. And I know full well that Molly, who was raised in a working-class family that was often dysfunctional and sometimes violent, who was the first person in her family to go to college, certainly understands needing to work for a living. Molly fought hard to become a woman of letters, to make writing a way of making a living and making a life. When I asked Molly for a recent photograph, she sent us some hand-drawn self-portraits. As part of sheltering her imaginative spirit, Molly is taking an online class with New Yorker cartoonist Maggie Larson through the 92nd Street Y. We will post Molly's wonderful self-portraits on social media, and patrons will also get to see a one-frame cartoon haiku that Molly made. I follow the amazing Portland, Oregon-based poet Alicia Jo Rabins on Instagram and noticed a few weeks ago that she'd been posting what she calls bathtub poems. Hi, this is Alicia Jo Rabins. I live in Portland, Oregon, um, and I've been writing poems in my bathtub at night, sometimes in the shower. Yes, it's bad um, electronics hygiene, <laughs> but I do have an iPhone 11, so I think it's waterproof. And I just type them into my phone, into emails to myself. And, um, basically it's like what gets me through the day is knowing that at the end of the day, I'm going to somehow process it and turn it into something that can be held in words. And, um, so I'll read a few of them for you now. To my children during the pandemic, I am sorry you cannot play with your friends, can't touch the swings, the monkey bars, the slide, can't have a birthday party when you turn eight next week, can't go to school, can't visit your grandparents, your little cousins. In the fourth week of this new regime, I hear myself say no, 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 and realize that in normal times to withhold these simple joys from you would be cruel. But these are not normal times. Here is my wish as your mother, that one day when you are grown, you will understand these days are filled with the no of love, which opens the door to a million days of yes. Hello. What now. a nice surprise. <laughs> okay, I'm reminding you that I am recording this for Commonplace, but you are not recording it on your answering machine. <laughs> no, no, no. That was an accident. It was because oh. I was washing my hands. I didn't want to pick up the phone with dirty hands. No, no. Heaven forbid. Um, and I'm late calling you because I was disinfecting my groceries. Uh. <laughs> I love that the rest of the world has become so obsessive compulsive about Tim Smith to catch up with me, you know? 
Like Batman grabs his utility belt, I grab my soap and hand sanitizer. I spoke to my beloved friend, the poet D.A. Powell, in early April by telephone at his apartment in San Francisco. I'd seen him, virtually, a few days earlier when I joined his class at University of San Francisco via Zoom, along with the poet Derek Austin. Derek and I had been scheduled to visit USF in person, and I had planned to stay a few days extra to spend time with Doug. I'd been missing him deeply, not having seen him in person for a long time. And I know you've been frustrated over the years that some people do not take other people's health or immune systems kind of seriously, and many people are very cavalier, and this is a whole new ball game yeah. for a lot of people, but for some people... Well, it's kind of the to... same, you know? It's like everybody's mostly concerned with their own health. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the whole debate over whether to wear a mask or not wear a mask, it really has to do with, like, well, do I need a mask for my own protection? Mm -hmm. And what people aren't getting is that you need a mask for other people's protection. You and I, over the years, have um, encouraged each other to work less. And I think that's kind of an interesting way in which we support each other in our writing lives um, that might surprise people. You came to a period in your life and in your career where you were really overextended. Uh, You weren't able to do the things that made you a great writer and made you healthy and made you sane and and have enough time to paint and um, go to baseball games and, you know, let alone um, do a good job at the things that you were saying yes to. And then I think I was probably like three to five years behind you. You know, you were saying, I need to slow down. I need to be more selective. And I was still saying yes to everything. And then I got to a point where I was like, this, this is a very unhappy way to live. Um, and very unhealthy. We're not alone in this, but I do think that it might be somewhat unusual to welcome some of the limitations of this situation. Given that we're both healthy still, uh, and hopefully will remain so, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you and I have both had health problems, and I think that that was where our wake-up calls came from, to just say, hey, we need to take more time for our own health and less time for other people's uh, comfort. Yep. And I think it's it's hard because, um, you know, you, you're you used to going at a certain pace and um, to suddenly have to shift gears and, and slow down is, um, if, if it's not been your choice, it can mm-hmm. feel a little frustrating. But what I'm discovering is that it's okay to shift into that slower pace for a while. I mean, this is the perfect time because fewer people are making demands on me. Like last night, I watched Dreams, the Akira Kurosawa movie. Mm. I, I have it on DVD. I've, I've had it for a couple of years and just never got around to watching it. And it's a beautiful movie. It's a very slow-paced movie. Beautiful color, gorgeous. There's only one part of the movie that's really awful with um, Martin Scorsese playing Vincent Van Gogh. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And you just want to say, Akira, 
what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> That's hilarious. I did not know that. I don't know if I've seen the movie or not. I can't remember. Um, well, it's it's one of his his last films, and uh-huh. I think it's it's a little self indulgent. But I mean, I love self indulgence in art. Um, <laughs> Me too. Me too. Are you um, reading anything really sustaining right now? Or are you reading at all? I'm I'm reading. Yeah, um, I'm. Uh, Midway through The Turner House. In addition to reading The Turner House, a debut novel by Angela Flournoy, which Doug says is really enjoyable, Doug has just finished reading In Country by Hugh Martin, a special ops soldier in Afghanistan. He's got poems uh, that, that are really interesting about sort of the discomfort of... Um, being recognized for one's service when you feel sort of ambivalent about it. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, the terror of um, finding a, a duffel bag and not knowing who it belongs to. Um, mm. He's got a poem called Sorrow Awareness Training that I feel like maybe we all need. One of his, his uh, friends says, Let's fucking cry. And um, they take onions in the mess all and um, practice crying. Um, I've been reading Tim Tlucos mm. uh, lately. Um, that marvelous collection that David Trinidad edited, uh, A Fast Life. And my God, you just think, okay, this guy in um, the worst days of the AIDS crisis was writing these brilliant, funny, terrifying, beautiful poems. Um, do you know his poem, Healing the World from Battery Park? No. I feel like this is a poem that um, that everyone should be reading right now. Um, yeah, I, I, but I'm always reading tons of poetry books. I um, Doug is also reading a manuscript called Still Life with Sponsor by his friend T.J. DeFrancesco that he says is funny and wonderful. I asked Doug if the pandemic has affected his ability to pay attention. Well, I've never been able to pay attention except <laughs> in two cases, when I'm watching a movie or when I'm reading. Mm. Those are really the only attentions that I pay. Otherwise, you know, I'm sort of um, promiscuous in my gaze, Mm. and uh, my eye is distracted by bright, shiny, or beautiful things, or interesting things. My ear is constantly distracted when people are talking. I'm always listening to what else is going on around me. Written words and movies are the the two things that I can really focus on. What about writing? Writing for me is not a focused event. Um, It can be intense and I can have moments where um, I am really just all in it. But um, writing for me is a form of distraction. Mm. Um, It really is for me a way of kind of burning off thoughts. Mm-hmm. of um, 
collecting images and events and and um, sentences and all sorts of things that occur in my life, and I can put them into a poem, and then I don't have to think about them again, or at least mm. they don't, you know, they don't uh, hang around in my mind in the same way. Mm-hmm. Poetry for me is a way of sort of um, silencing the ghosts. You have to understand. I've been I've been writing through a pandemic for uh, over twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, so this new way of being in the world for other people is just an extension of a way of being in the world that's already existed for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's changed my writing a whole lot. I use writing equally for escapism as well as for meditation, healing, insight. Uh, I love what Jory says, you know, I I don't write a poem because I had a thought. I write a poem to see what it is I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. you know, to have the experience of of, um, putting these ideas together and seeing how they correspond with each other. I'm not very disciplined when it comes to writing. Um, I tend to write uh, only in those moments when I'm insanely bored. (laughs) Which, as it turns out, over a life is quite a few times. (laughs) Even though you're saying and that often you write out of boredom or uh, for escapism or meditation or to find out what you're thinking. Um, Do you feel like at this moment, poetry is important um, on a global scale? You know, is it, is it more meaningful than other forms of escapism, both for the person writing it um, and for future or current readers? Poetry has always been important. It is one of those activities that we engage in really early on. When we're first acquiring language, we start playing with it and puzzling with it and noticing similarities and rhymes and correspondences. And so, you know, in that way, it's like dance. It's something that's always a part of us. It's Mm -hmm. something that we're always capable of. Um, and we find ourselves turning to it at different times for different reasons. Maybe we're picking out a poem to express our love when we're getting married, or maybe we're trying to find the right words to say at someone's memorial service, or um, maybe we've just had a bad breakup and need to write about it, and maybe um, sometimes we need the um, community that... Uh, accrues around poetry. Sometimes we need to sort of turn our back on the world and have poetry be our um, private space. I would love to think that poetry has a sort of um, global repercussion, and I think it does, but maybe not in the way that people want it to. It's not something that's going to catch fire immediately. But I look at a poem like um, 
Gratitude by um, Cornelius Edie or um, uh, Good Bones by Maggie Smith. And these are poems that, you know, have this life that's continuing to bloom and mm. evolve. And um, as the poem sort of makes its rounds, the relationship with it grows deeper. Um, not every poem does that. But the fact that there are even a few or that there may be many poems that people um, go back to. And, um, you know, uh, I was talking with Sam Witt the other night and we were talking about um, Jory Graham's end of uh, the what the end is for. You know? mm-hmm. um, and how that poem is one of those poems that you can go back to again and again and again. And it keeps filling you up. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, uh, Emily Dickinson and um, uh, Langston Hughes and um, Judy Gron and, um, uh, for me, Robert Duncan. You know, there are certain poets that um, the more I go back to, the more I get out of them. Mm-hmm. Doug and I spoke for a long time about the global repercussions of poetry and the history of the AIDS epidemic. I may include some of that audio in a future episode. For this episode, patrons will have access to an audio file of D.A. Powell reading Healing the World from Battery Park City by Tim Dlugos as it appears in the book A Fast Life, edited by David Trinidad. Some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of Atlas T, a brand new chapbook by D.A. Powell published by Rescue Press. The proceeds for Atlas T will go to Youth Speaks, a San Francisco organization whose mission is to create safe spaces that challenge young people to find, develop, publicly present, and apply their voices as creators of societal change. Here's the beautiful audio message I received from Rosa Alcala. Hello, Commonplace Podcast listeners. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this roll call, for calling out my name. I'm here, presente in this pandemic. My family and I are safe. We're fine here in El Paso. My family in New Jersey is okay as well. I know that others are not doing as well as we are, and that's very difficult to know. Um, It's especially difficult to read about the situations in various nursing homes. since my mother lived in a nursing home for a few years and my tia and madrina um, who recently died not of COVID-19 but she was in a nursing home as well and so it's really hard to read those stories Um, one of the things that I've been doing is getting up early to read just to have a little space to myself within this quarantine 
um, within this isolation with my family. I'm going to send a picture of some of the books that I've been reading for the last two months um, or thinking about. And one of the books that I've been reading um, is a collection of poems by Ingeborg Bachmann. Uh, the translations are by Peter Filkins. And I thought I would share a poem. It's called No Delicacies. Nothing pleases me anymore. Should I fit out a metaphor with an almond blossom? Crucify the syntax upon an effective light? Who will rack their brains over such superfluous things? I have learned an insight with words that exist for the lowest class. Hunger, shame, tears, and darkness. With unpurged tears, with despair, and I despair in the face of despair about so much misery, the sick pay, the cost of living, I will get by. I don't neglect writing, but rather myself. The others are able, God knows, to get by with words. I am not my assistant. Should I arrest an idea, lead it off to a bright sentence cell, feed sight and hearing with first-class word morsels, analyze the libido of a vowel, estimate the collector's value of our consonants? Must I battered by hail with the writing cramp in this hand under the pressure of the 300th night rip up the paper sweep away the scribbled word operas annihilating as well I, you, he, she, it we, you, all should the others should my part it will be lost thank you for letting me share that poem with you um, a big hug to everyone lots of love I hope everyone is well I hope everyone is safe bye ciao hello hi is this Bernadette Mayer yes this is she who is this this is Rachel Booker the poet from Commonplace oh hi hi how are you uh, I, I'm okay. I think I'm okay. <laughs> you have to come over here and make sure. <laughs> Bernadette Mayer is one of the poets I go back to over and over. I had the great pleasure of speaking with her at her home in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. She said she's doing well, that the way she's living now is not that different from how she normally lives, except for an air of weirdness, and that the sky is bluer than usual. People have been very kind and loving, and we've gotten so many wonderful meals mm. sent to us or, you know, delivered to us or whatever. And I love the fact that the sky is blue. Mm -hmm. But am I allowed to love that now? Probably right. not. Bernadette's partner, Philip Good, had told me on the phone that Bernadette's project, Memory, was being published. 
For those of you who don't know, in July of 1971, Bernadette exposed one roll of 35mm film every day and kept a daily journal. This conceptual project contained over 1,100 photographs and 200 pages of text and a six-hour audio recording. Despite having seen only selections of the photographs, this project has been hugely inspiring to me because it is both monumental, domestic, and daily. I was deeply thrilled to hear that Siglio Press has just published a full edition of the photographs and text. So, and are you writing now? Are you working on anything new? I'm not really working on a particular thing. I'm just, uh, I'm writing constantly, but I don't know what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, you know, I I was doing uh, all my, my own workshop assignments for a long time, and that was so, so interesting to me. And now that I'm not doing the workshop, I, I, I just have to think of the assignments for myself. I asked Bernadette how her dreams have been during the pandemic. Well, you know, my dreams, you know, you mean at this time? Yeah. Uh, my dreams have been, uh, I think, very fucked up in many ways. Uh, I keep dreaming. It's like a recurrent dream that uh, somebody has died. And then in the dream... I say, oh, but it doesn't really matter because that person had died already. Mm. So they're all anxiety dreams about my childhood. Wow. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, it's gotten to the point where I don't really even want to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel that way? I told Bernadette about my recent dream in which I found a box of disposable gloves and it was the happiest feeling I'd had in a long, long time. Her daughter had dreamed of drinking Purell. I asked Bernadette if she would read me a few of her new poems. So there's two other poems. One is from a collaboration I've been doing with Leanne Brown. Without any form and no letter, the parts of speech heal like moss, like a love letter. We asked for bread, and right away, Alice brought babka. We needed money, then it appeared twice. I was looking for the trillium too soon, but there it was in your poem. I didn't know people called cocks robins in England. It wasn't the dark we feared. Grace was afraid of the sheer cliff by the side of the road. It wasn't a can of soup we ate, but a soup we made of onion and sweet potato. And as for the trillium, can a flower get the coronavirus and die? I love that. What are the rules of the collaboration with Leanne? Uh, well... I don't know. We started out with the, we were writing 11 line poems. Is that what you meant? Yeah. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, Leanne did what she always does, which is write something that has no rules at all. 
<laughs> so that's what that was, the, a response to uh-huh. the, the rule of nothingness. <laughs> and just this one last poem, sort of in my journal, I saw a little indication that there'd be buds this year, but now I don't see it. Plus, the sun that was out is in now. And tomorrow, it's supposed to snow again. But wait, now, the sun again. Am I a woman or a man? Glug, glug, let's fight. No, let's give people free food and fight with full frontal nudity on a full stomach with our phallic symbol swords so afterwards we can burp heartily and then rip each other's hearts out. Oi, Zaysmere, where are you going with this? I'm just confused by those images of the coronavirus. You know, the globe with pink flowers stuck in it. Is it good or evil or neither? <laughs> I put I put myself on mute so you wouldn't hear me laughing. <laughs> but I laughed. So hard, it fight with full frontal nudity. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny, right? I, mean, I love all these three poems so much. Oh, I'm so happy. Thank <sighs> you. Lainey Brown is the author of many books of poetry of her own, a frequent direct and indirect collaborator, including with Bernadette Mayer and with Leanne Brown. And Lainey Brown wrote the foreword to the 2017 re-release of Bernadette Mayer's The Desires of Mothers to Please Others in Letters, which was originally published in 1994. I spoke with Lainey via telephone at her home in Pennsylvania. She was finishing up her semester, teaching two classes that had begun in person and moved online. Laney said that because her students were already very connected to each other, the transfer to online mostly worked well, but she did find translating everything to online space laborious and missed the intimacy of responding to student work by hand. Laney said she felt more busy rather than less. She had recently co-created a public art project in Philadelphia with visual artist Brent Wall. Because the events surrounding the public art project couldn't happen in person, Lainey began making her first podcast. I've actually recorded six episodes, and as you know, there's a lot of work. So it's just (laughs) me and one student who's doing the audio editing. What's it called? It's called Poetry at the Rail Park. (laughs) <laughs> and what format or the focus of, of poetry at the rail park? So um, the rail park in Philadelphia is a kind of like a mini high line that opened two summers ago. And I collaborated with the visual artist Brent Wall, who made a site specific sculpture. And then I, he asked me to collaborate on it. It was his pitch. And I decided to curate a constellation of poetry in many languages. So it's, Poetry from 28 artists in 13 languages. It's carved into stone in the park, only in the original languages. So it's fantastic, and nobody knows about it yet. And so the pod, what the podcast is doing is inviting guests who are in one way or another involved, like either their poetry is featured or they are a translator of some of the poets 
uh, etc. So there, each guest is choosing one poetry fragment to talk about, mm-hmm. and then they talk about their own work or translation work in relation to the installation. And then because it's happening right now, we're also just looking at everything through the lens of this moment. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I can't wait. When do you think you will air it? I wish I knew the episodes are still being edited and then they're all going to live um, for, you know, at Penn, um, mm-hmm. but also they'll be available on other platforms. So it probably just depends on everybody's workload. It was a great project for thinking about community and, and public space and curation. I mean, other things that I'm doing is I'm do, I do a lot of collage. So right now my study is just covered with all these unfinished collages all over the floor. And my usual practices of daily practices of yoga and herbal medicine and um, meditating in those various communities. I'm very much leaning, leaning into that. And then writing, writing by hand in my notebook, you know, Mm. trying to, trying to, start there. I've been doing writing in my notebook by hand for more, for, I don't know, I go back and forth and I try to use all the mediums, but for the last couple of years, I've tried to start my day that way. And I just found that it is, I feel like it's physically calming for me to write by hand in a notebook with a fountain pen and slowly fill my pen with ink and think about the color of my ink Mm. Um, it just slows things down and, and reading. What are you reading? Well, right now on my desk, you know, I decided I wanted to reread the book Lolly Willows. Do you know that book? No. Oh, it's fantastic. Sylvia Townsend Warner wrote this book and it's this allegory about female power, basically about a woman who is when her father dies to just move in with her sisters and take care of their children and she's 28 and unmarried and everyone just assumes like she's a piece of furniture basically (laughs) um but she runs away to the countryside and and well I don't want to spoil the book for anybody but it becomes an allegorical text about magic and power like what is the cost of having an independent life as a woman I just finished reading Lisa Robertson's new novel, The Baudelaire Fractal, which Mm. is, it's gorgeous. Lainey told me she'd spent her morning picking one poem, a poem of affinity, for each of her students. She'd been picking poems by C.D. Wright, Prigita Sharma, Harmony Holiday, and Divya Victor. When I asked Lainey if she felt optimistic or pessimistic about the future, or if she tried to avoid thinking about the future at all, she said, That question is really important to me, and I know people are responding all different kind of ways. Um, But for myself, I'm really trying to focus on the positive power of imagination space for good that can come. I don't. I do not imagine we're ever going back. Um, you know, things are going to be different, but I feel like um, for me, it's really important to think of the possibility to hold the space for possibility for huge wake up, huge institutional change. I, I really want to 
hold the space that, that this can happen, that we can wake up, that we can make major changing changes to think about our, our planet and our relationships. And this is, this is just the beginning of that. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of Lisa Robertson's The Baudelaire Fractal, courtesy of Coach House Books. John Bewin has been making podcasts for a long time. He is producer and host of Duke Centers for Documentary Studies podcast, Seen on Radio. I spoke with John about Seeing White and Men, seasons two and three of Seen on Radio, in episode 67. I wrote to John to ask how he was. He emailed me that he was sheltering in place in Durham, North Carolina, with his wife, Eva. His young adult children were safely sheltering elsewhere. John told me that he was busy getting out the newest season of Seen on Radio and that he was feeling enormously privileged to be able to hunker down and stay relatively safe while having work and, again, relatively safe paycheck amidst the loss, hardship, and national leadership that ranges from incompetent to negligent to actively cruel. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to season four of Seen on Radio, the land that never has been yet. This season reunites John with Chenjerai Kumanika, journalism and media studies professor at Rutgers University, and public radio veteran Loretta Williams. Here's a brief discussion from Seen on Radio's website of season four. Our 12-part series on democracy will touch on the concerns of Trumpian authoritarianism, voter suppression, and gerrymandering, foreign intervention, election security, and the role of money in politics, but will go much deeper, effectively retelling the story of the United States from the beginnings to the present as we complicate, maybe upend, our listeners' understanding of American history. If you haven't already listened to Seen on Radio, I recommend it highly. And of course, I also recommend you check out Commonplace Episode 67 and my conversation with John about why it was important and effective for John to have a recurring conversational partner or official co-host, the value of white people examining whiteness and men examining toxic masculinity virtue signaling, problems with imaginative empathy, and how not to just think about oppression, but begin to do something about changing it. Here's another bathtub poem by Alicia Jo Rabins. Reading Exodus in a Time of Plague. I used to study the holy texts night and day, certain there was some wisdom inside those words which would make me live fully for the first time. Now I immerse myself in the news with the same solemn devotion I once gave the rabbis. I have become acolyte of epidemiologists. I used to whisper evening prayers. Now I recite statistics and watch the curves the angel of death draws in the air with his wing. Which color is the line for my city? Which for yours? Which of us is Pharaoh? which Noah, when we leave this narrow place and walk out into the glaring desert beyond, will we recognize each other in that light?
I spoke with Darcy Stanky in early April. She was in Sullivan County, where she and her husband, journalist Mike Hudson, have a small home. Darcy's 24-year-old daughter was there as well. Mike was busy working for the International Consortium of Journalists. Darcy's daughter, a filmmaker and drummer, was busy teaching a remote after-school Riot Girl rock class. And Darcy was finishing up her semester. Her class had moved online by this point. And then I'm teaching my class. I'm, I'm amazingly teaching my... This, and this class was... I thought of this class last summer, actually, but it's called The Literature of the Apocalypse. <laughs> so I'm teaching, I'm teaching my Literature of the Apocalypse class. You know, I just got off of a conference where the woman was like... You know, she's a lovely young student, but uh, but she's like, I just don't know if I can read another one of these books. I'm like, that is fine. Like, you read the book you want, and then we can have a conference about it. Because this week, I kind of saved the road, you know, know, the Cormac McCarthy novel to the end, because I thought, oh, it's just so brutal. And like, but now I'm like, ugh, we're going to have to read the road. (laughs) Um, But it's been amazing. Like, we we started in late January with Revelations, um, and then we read A Plague Diary, which I, I think those are the two books that are sort of... Well, and then also The Last Man by Mary Shelley. There's you know, the three books that sort of are like the like the founding text of the apocalyptic novel. Um, then we read Severance by Ling Ma, which is so great. We read um, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, which is such a wonderful book. And then this week we're reading a book called Scribe by Alison Hagee. Hmm. And I chose it because it's like, it's an apocalypse, but it's set during the Civil War. Hmm. So it's interesting to have like apocalypses that that can kind of be inserted into history. Like, it doesn't always have to be this moment. And of those books, um, if you hadn't chosen this class beforehand, which of those books, if if any, would you recommend for people to read right now, assuming they want to read apocalyptic literature right now? And some don't. Yes, and you don't have to, yeah. No, I think, well, I guess, I mean, I think Severance is an amazing book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, it's super easy to read, but it also has a lot of interesting ideas in it. And I think Octavia Butler is a genius, mm. you know. I'm so sad that we lost her so early. But um, her book is kind of about the founding of a new religion. But you, but, but before that, there's the world breaking down and this young sort of African-American woman sort of... I mean, it's a lot about community. Most apocalyptic novels are not about community. They're about one person or two people making it. Mm-hmm. Um, and But... But Parable of the Sower is about someone building a community for the future. Mm. So I found, I found that one really... I, you know, so I would say those two. I can't really choose one. Right. But I would say those two would be ones. Yeah. And based on your um, recent rereadings and teaching of these apocalyptic novels, um, do you have any insight for us in our current situation? Well, it's interesting when you read Mary Shelley's Last Man. You know, it's, it's a book she, read after, she wrote after Frankenstein, and that the plague like knocks out everybody except for except for one individual. And that book was really fascinating to me because it, it really shows that it's not just the germs, but it's also politics that make the end of the world. Mm. You know, it's 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 science and it's it's germs and it's illness, but also it's bad management, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And you know, and cowardice and because in that book there's there's just no leadership at all, much like our current moment, you know, with our president. So like that that was sort of interesting to see that that's that's a truth that's maybe always been around you know I don't know I mean I myself am you know I sort of tend to like darker things and uh not that interested in happy endings so but I taught the class because I don't really like 
I generally don't like apocalyptic movies or or literature because I always think they're kind of fake. You know, like Mm -hmm. I always think like, and I find that to be true even as we go through the class. Like, really, what happens when? Things get weird as you're, I mean, nobody's killing zombies, you know? I mean, everybody is is trying to get toilet paper and buy Perel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very normal. <laughs> and if there are moral questions, they're much more complicated than killing zombies, right? It's like, is the 80-year-old going to get the ventilator or is the 40-year-old, right? So I wanted mm-hmm. to I'll teach a class in which I sort of humanize some of these things. Mm-hmm. So that's the weird thing about teaching the class is, like, I was going to do that, like, through these books. <laughs> but in some ways, like, the world is doing that. Like, you know what I mean? So, um, so the world is sort of backing me up on my syllabus and my ideas. Uh, so that's been interesting. You know, when I get freaked out, I kind of go deeper rather than avoid, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I like going deep into these, like, m- like multiple apocalyptic scenarios and and, you know and most of the books not all of the books but many of the books do have some hope Mm -hmm. at the end and that's nice to see I mean like The Last Man by Mary Shelley at at the end he decides to write a book which is you know a very hopeful thing there's no other person to read it but clearly we are reading it so there's something very hopeful about that Um, at the end of Parable of the Sower by by Octavia Butler it's clear that a new community based on Based on uh, you know mutuality, uh, um, you know, you know everybody caring for the children together, no racism. You know that seems very, yeah, seems very hopeful. Um, the book we're reading today, yeah, there's this like love comes in the end where there hasn't been much love. So there's there can be things that are hopeful and and they're so hard won. You know it's, that's what I really like because I don't like easy. I, I it's, it's not that I don't mind hope or. Or happy endings, but I, I want them to be justified, you know. Mm-hmm. So and and these books so far they have been. So that's mm-hmm. been sort of interesting too. Um, what else are you doing other than uh, reading these books to go uh, deeper into the darkness of this time? Yeah. Well, I've been working. I don't know what I'm going to do for my next project, but both of the projects that I've been kind of working on simultaneously. Actually, one is nonfiction. And one is a novel. So the nonfiction one is I, I sort of wanted to write a book about like um, world builders and world destroyers. Mm. And I wanted to use Prospect Park because I, I love, you know, like I, you know, I love Frederick, Frederick Law Olmsted so much. I think he was such a genius. I love his life. But I also wanted to sort of write about like female naturalists. I feel like they don't get enough like Rachel Carson. They don't really no one ever talks about them. It's always like the men naturalists. Um, but I like the idea of like using Prospect Park the way some people use use like um like like Mount Everest. Like I can actually talk about the deaths in the park, and there have uh-huh. been some you know very interesting deaths. I mean, somebody to protest global warming, someone caught themselves on fire in the park, you know, which is just an amazing thing to do. And there's been a lot of crime, so like I just have the idea of like you know using the park, the actually talking about it in a very sincere way, like my wilderness. So oh, that's one idea, and that. That also goes into my, I'm a direct descendant of um, William Miller, who was the founder of the Seven-Day Adventist Church, who actually, like, tried to make the world end mm. in um, 18, 1838 in October. Hmm. Uh, so that would kind of come into the book, too. So I don't know. I mean, that's all very, like, uh, I don't know what it's going to be, but it could be something. And then, uh, then the novel, I've been trying to work, I've been like working on this novel for so long, like I've been keeping notes for probably 10 years. And it's about a woman that, it's about a woman that starts her own religion, but it's from the point of view of her daughter who isn't really into her, you know? So like, so it's that tension between like, uh, 
like what is, and you know, also a lot about, I'm very interested in the, I mean, pagan goddess cults and, you know, uh, like pagan river goddesses and all that stuff. So I was like to do something modern, but to use some of those ideas. So I don't know. And, and I, I also wanted to write about a female theologian. So I was thinking that the daughter could maybe be a female, a female theologian, but her mother then started a religion somehow. Mm. So I thought, yeah, those two things would be interesting. So I've taken so many notes and I've written so much. So I just went through all my notes. I, I've been doing that in the last couple of weeks. I went through all my notes and just, I, a lot of stuff wasn't working and was kind of stupid, but then I kind of kept the stuff that was good. And I sort of figured out an opening a little bit. So I've been working on that like a little bit every day, but I kind of do both. I both, because I take these walks. I, I take a walk up church. There's a really beautiful street in my town. You know, my town's only 150 people. Hmm. And there's, it goes right, I'm right next to like Houlihan Creek. And sometimes you're right near it, but sometimes you're high above it. And I've been, uh, just like in Prospect Park, I've been taking real notes and using my um, my plant identification apps on my phone um, and you know, kind of trying to figure out what the different mosses are and all that stuff. So I've been doing kind of both simultaneously because mm-hmm. I can't, haven't quite committed to one yet. So I, my hope is by the summer I'll, I'll figure it out. I feel like right now I just can't, you know, it's like too, too much stuff going on to like like settle on a project now I feel like I need a little more space to yeah, before I decide I mean mm-hmm. I've been really trying to hold all the sadness like in my mind and doing that Buddhist thing where you breathe in the sadness but then breathe out peace you know because mm. there's just so much so many people suffering I'm very aware of that you know like mm. so many people suffering it's hard to face directly there's yes. so much I mean the thought of so many dead bodies and like but I'm trying as much as I can, you know, within my mental health range, I'm trying to keep that, like, suffering, like, you know, like, in my mind and, like, you know, like, hope, like hoping for peace for people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. peace, you know, peace and comfort. Um, mm. uh, and, and then just so much respect and gratitude to, you know, for all the caring, mm-hmm. all the, the nurses and the doctors and the, I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing what they're doing. The paperback edition of Darcy's fabulous book, Flash Count Diary, is coming out in August or September. And Darcy said that her publisher and her publicist told her that a lot of the online literary events have been remarkably successful. Initially, Darcy found switching over to virtual teaching stressful, especially because she said she relies heavily on students' body language. But after a few weeks, it's gone well, and she feels optimistic that virtual teaching, as well as virtual literary events, might open things up to people who might otherwise not be able to attend, and that the virtual hosting of these events may create a more inclusive literary community. Kristen Prevale has stayed at her home in Brooklyn for the duration of the lockdown. I received this audio message from her. Hi, Rachel. It's Kristen. So good to hear from you a couple of weeks ago. No, that was a month ago. COVID time is so weird. It seems like the days go on forever, but yet the time is going by very, very quickly. Um, so I'm doing good. I'm here with Sophie, my daughter, 17. I think our kids are the same age. Um, we're, you know, feeling very blessed to be in this, in our, in our house. Uh, we have a little backyard and really being serious this year about trying to get a garden going. Um, 
really almost as a community effort uh, to make sure that there's always going to be fresh food happening for maybe friends in the city, um, you know, because it's so hard to tell, say what, what what's going to be happening in the next few months regarding workers, farm workers and such. So it seems like um, backyard foraging is uh, essential. I have a lot of dandelions growing in the yard right now, and we're going to make a dandelion cake this afternoon. Um, and all in all, you know, Sophie is really doing well. Um, she, you know, there's a weird thing about the circadian rhythms of, of a teenager and she goes to bed at two in the morning and she gets up at noon. The school, you know, I don't have any, I, I don't know what's going on with the school as far as lessons and things like that go, but she gets, seems to be getting her schoolwork done and on her own time and her mood's been very good and she's stabilized significantly. And I'm just still telling you that because last year, sophomore year was our hell year. Sounds like we went through what you are going through. Strangely, I think she made it through the, the woods of that. It was a combination of, um, you know, just therapy. And also I did take her to a couple of shamans, um, which I think just planted some interesting seeds. I don't know if you have tried that. There was something that happened with that kind of weird, wild, um, you know, sort of stomp the ground, throw stones into the water and, you know, give it to the earth um, therapy. Poetically, um, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm in a pretty, I'm actually, Rachel, to be honest with you, um, going even crazier than I was before, I think, poetically. Um, I'm now, you know, I'm, I am deeply going to begin investigating the flying rolls of the golden dawn because I think that the um, magic, M-A-G-I-C-K, that has been commandeered by kind of a white supremacist, very patriarchal, masculine, Alistair Crawley kind of black magic with capes and lots of eyeliner. Um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, this is the emergence of, of a kind of divine feminine presence. If that's the case, then, you know, it is time to re to sort of take back those magical um, rituals and return them to um, the more kind of uh, moon oriented goddess centric rituals, which to me, of course, is poetic in the sense of taking on wild imagination um, and really transforming these rituals into a poetics. Um, not really writing, to be honest with you. Um, the manuscript project that I talked about on the Commonplace podcast, you know, that manuscript just, I feel, I don't know if it, it, what's happening with it. We'll see if anything happens with it. It might be, it might just have been a five-year deep dive into a very sincere, very severe shadow side, um, and I'm now kind of re-emerging as a, a much more grounded crone, baby crone, as a Susan Weed calls us. You know, thinking of you and your kids, and you're hunkering down and hoping that you can find, you know, solace. And I will send you the recipe for the dandelion. Uh, cake. Here we all are, hanging out, drifting through space. Okay, bye.
Like Kristen, I am planting literal and shamanic seeds, and in some ways hoping to go crazier poetically than I was before. And now, this short message from Gordon, a listener in Brooklyn. Hey, Rachel, this is Gordon calling from Brooklyn. Um, cooped up in an apartment <laughs> alone for now. Um, I am very lucky. I'm healthy. Uh, I, I have the means to sustain myself. Uh, I have a job that I can work remotely. Um, I have a fairly sizable patio uh, out back so I can go outside and not have to worry about any sort of disease pressure. Um, as far as poetry is concerned, um, I've noticed that my own writing has taken on a very clear theme of physical contact and the experience of having a body and sharing bodies with other people. It, there's not a lot of that going on in my life <laughs> um, because of obvious uh, circumstances. But um, in addition to that, while I am cohabitating uh, with my girlfriend here, we going into the COVID lockdown, we were having some issues with the relationship and there has not been a lot of physical intimacy for about six months and um, a few weeks in we just we needed space from each other so I moved into uh, into the office um, and had been sleeping there and so on top of not being out in public and having physical contact on a routine basis with anybody in any capacity um, at home, I haven't been getting any either. So um, without even really realizing it, my poems have started all focusing around the body and the intimacy and the essential nature of um, of being shared organisms and the longing for that and, and a kind of grief and mourning for the loss of that in my life for what has been several months now. Um, I don't have any pets either, so <laughs> it really is solitary. Um, but uh, commonplace has been really important to me um, since as a, as a poet, as a writer, I, even though I live in the epicenter of the literary community on the East Coast in Brooklyn, um, I, I don't really have a literary community to speak of. Um, I don't really know many writers. I didn't go to... Gordon's message was cut off, but I believe he was saying that he had not attended an MFA program. Thank you for calling, Gordon. We wish you well in your isolation. One of the commonplace episodes that I'd been wanting to make before the pandemic hit was about non-degree granting literary communities, including Emotive Fruition and the Bureau of General Services Queer Division and several others. I hope these literary communities survive the pandemic and come back in person when it's safe or else find a way to thrive virtually. Stephanie Burt sent me this audio message. 
She's living with her partner and their 14 and 10-year-old children in half of a two-family home in Belmont, Massachusetts, and says all four of them are doing okay. I am writing a lot, maybe surprisingly, but I'm writing only things I can imagine as collaborations, actual collaborations with people who are writing something with me or poems that a particular friend has commissioned or asked for or uh, sometimes critical essays where I can really imagine myself into the mentality that created the work of art. I'm more motivated than ever to write things that feel interactive and engaged and less motivated than ever to write things that make me feel more alone. I'm writing comic poetry also. I'm getting more interested in poems that will lift people up and poems that will make people want to share them. And that might be making me a shallower writer, but I'm having more fun. And maybe I was headed in that direction already, uh, but I'm trying to make the verse that I myself write fun. And I'm getting less interested in writing or in reading the kind of poetry that insists we spend a week trying to decode it so that it can tell us the world is broken and capitalism is bad. We, we know that. I don't need very, very challenging poems where the answer to the puzzle is to tell me that. We know that. I want poems that will expand my world and connect me to others and maybe lift me up and maybe honestly entertain me. Uh, the crisis is helping me get there and admit that that's what I want. And I'm definitely reading more fiction than I would have been reading, and that's probably to the good. They have had to cancel a number of book events, and that's okay. The local ones will happen when they happen. I've got a new book out called After Callimachus, which is uh, sexy or sarcastic translations, adaptations, and imitations of my favorite poet of classical antiquity. As for the events involving air travel, I have much more mixed feelings about canceling them because I would have enjoyed all of them, and some of them are sources of family income. But I do think I've been traveling too much, and I've been wondering how much air travel is okay uh, for someone like me as a resident of the earth. Stephanie goes on to say that her greatest challenge is interpersonal, keeping her own mood up to where she can lift up others. Some days are better than others, but she says mostly they're okay. She's aware of her many advantages, including where she is, who she's with, and what she and her family are doing. She's also grateful to be someone who is good at video calls, good at keeping in close touch with friends via Zoom and email. Some of her friends have gotten COVID, but all of them have recovered. And certain bonds with friends have been strengthened because of the pandemic. What I'm reading and watching and hearing is telling me that we're not going to have large-scale gatherings for a long time, or at least we shouldn't. I am expecting retail and K-12 schools to open, maybe even summer camps in August, I don't know. Uh, those will maybe be back to quasi-normal, and I, I hope so. 
I think that in America, where we work ourselves to death and don't get enough vacation, we might have a new appreciation of what you can do when you're not working. I've been comparing our experiences to those of my friends in New Zealand, which, as such things go, has a very competent government and a good deal of social cohesion. They, of course, are on lockdown right now, but they're going to be able to come out of it sooner because they caught it early and they have a testing regime. And maybe, you know, not unrelatedly, New Zealand also has a culture where you're not expected to work yourself to death just because you're good at your job. I noticed that during the few months that we were lucky enough to live there, I'd very much like to go back. And I'm seeing how my friends there are handling it. And it's hard to be locked down. But it's different from what the slice of the U.S. that can stay home and work from home and that has been in high-pressure, high-prestige occupations like university teaching has experienced. So I think our work ethic's going to change, and that's great. I think we're going to have less long-distance travel, less airplane travel. That's obviously good for the planet. I don't know what's going to happen to colleges and universities. I am quite scared that a lot of colleges and universities are just going to close if they can't open in the fall because they're tuition-dependent. But I'm hardly an expert there. I'm pretty confident that my own institution will survive a semester with no one on campus if we have to do that, and that the nation's great public entities, uh, state flagship schools in particular, and honestly community colleges, which are under-recognized, will survive. But I'm scared for my friends who are connected to terrific colleges like the one I used to teach at uh, that are relatively small private institutions and not the very richest among them. My 14-year-old and I are both night people. We try to make sure that he is in bed by 11, which is doable, whereas the school routine when he had to be out the door by 7.30 and in bed by 9.30 was not really doable. Um, He's an eighth grader. And I find myself going to bed when my partner does. She's less of a night person than I am. And then getting up again and writing and cleaning the kitchen and maybe talking to friends who are night people from 1 to 3 a.m. And I like that. I would continue that routine forever uh, if everybody's working schedule is permitted when the country restarts. I'm also looking forward to having a better chair because I'm writing in bed a lot, and that's good for me emotionally, but it's bad for my right shoulder. Hi, Cooper. That was my 10-year-old who's playing online D&D, which I also recommend. And in fact, I've got my own uh, all queer and trans people online D&D game coming up soon in which I am playing a half-elf druid who is more familiar with mushrooms and forests and ferns than with the world 
of cities and towns and dragons, and she is ready to learn. I hope we're all ready to learn, and I really appreciate, uh, Rachel, you're asking me to contribute. Thanks. Bye. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive Stephanie Burt's book, Don't Read Poetry, courtesy of Basic Books, and her book, After Kalamakis, Poems, courtesy of Princeton University Press. Here's a message from longtime listener Natalie Somer. Hi, Rachel and Commonplace. Um, This is Natalie Somer calling from Indianapolis. Um, I think it's really cool that you're doing this. Um, And, of course, I love Commonplace as like a lifeline for me, um, you know, for years now. Um, So one thought that I keep having is... um, this quote from Sarah Mangusto's 300 Arguments, um, you know, when the worst comes to pass, the first feeling is relief. And um, the one reason why my voice is kind of <clears throat> messed up right now is because yesterday I got a, uh, I got my positive um, diagnosis of COVID-19. And um, I, <laughs> I say I'm sort of relieved because, I guess because my significant other he already has it. Um, it makes things a little bit easier, I guess. Uh, and the kids are, our kids are showing some mild, um, symptoms, but you know, we're, we're doing okay. Um, it's not super severe for either of us, but it's not mild either, I wouldn't say. Um, but anyway, this thing, this feeling of relief, um, you know, as a super anxious person, uh, tendency towards anxiety and depression. I mean, I've been watching this whole thing since January, and of course, you know, being really worried and filled with dread, of course, because our, our, our government, um, Trump and Pence putting Pence in charge of this. Um, you know, I'm from Indiana. Pence was our, you know, he was our, our governor. Um, and, um, anyway, it's just, it was infuriating. And finally, you know, at a certain point, I was just like, well, I just have to accept that this is happening and, you know, what, what the hell am I going to do? Um, we're, we're kind of screwed. Um, <clears throat> and unfortunately, you know, at first we were doing a great job of quarantining and, um, I'm very, you know, lucky. And of course there's these mixed feelings. There's the dread and then there's also the, gratitude because I have been able to stay home um, because I have a, a, a full-time job teaching at a community college um, and we're all online now, you know, um, but just a few years ago, I was, I worked for a long time as a grocery store florist and I was adjuncting um, and then my significant other, he, he does not have a job where he can work from home. So, but he stopped working and we were enjoying, you know, family time, but then he did go back to work and he was delivering packages for FedEx and then he ended up getting sick. <clears throat> but I just wanted to say, with, as far as the writing, um, seeing all the virtual readings and all kinds of things popping up and calls for COVID-19 themes and pandemics and all this just like onslaught of emails and posts and all this stuff, it's very overwhelming. I try to just, you know, I feel happy that people are able to continue on um, and, and find fulfillment 
when they can't be meeting in person. But I've been very, I feel very kind of removed from that because I'm just not, I mean, I was working from home and then with the kids and everything. I don't know how people, I'm also an editor of a literary journal and people would be like, oh, I have all this time. Like they'd say things like, oh, I have time and I've revised this and can I send this to you again and da, da, da. And, you know, certain groups of people or other people have more time, whereas I feel like I've had absolutely no time, no alone time. So that's difficult, and I'm just going to try to work very quietly and privately, like, on this project that I am working on. Um, And so I'm going to focus on that for the summer. But I just wanted to say, as far as the writing community, I am not relating to, like, oh, post this poem, post my pandemic poem and share me reading this and doing that. And because I just don't feel um, it's just too overwhelming everything with everything. Um, I just kind of feel like going inside of a hole, you know, and just hiding out. But anyway, thank you so much for all the work you do. And all right, take care and hope you're well. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for calling, Natalie. We wish you, your significant other, and children a full and speedy recovery and continued safety. We wish you time and space to continue to work quietly, quietly this summer, and for the freedom from comparing yourselves, as we all so often do, to others who seem to be producing more or coping differently. It's really an honor to know that you're out there listening. Here's one last bathtub poem from Alicia Joe Rabins. For this episode, all patrons will have access to two other bathtub poems written and read by Alicia Joe. In our last episode, Erica Meitner recommended Alicia Joe's weekly Shabbat service. So if you want to hear more Alicia Joe poems and songs, follow her on Instagram and Twitter or visit commonpodcast.com for links. On breathing. I'm okay during the day, but at night I get scared, which makes it hard to breathe, which is a symptom of the pandemic, which is what scares me. Well-played anxiety, my old friend. You've always warned me something like this might happen. You're a gift from my ancestors who survived plagues and worse. They wove you into my DNA to warn me so that I too might survive. Now that it's happening, anxiety, I don't need you anymore. I need the ones who gave you to me. Hear me, ancestors who lived through danger times. I'm ready for you now. All these years I've carried your worries in my bones. Now I need your love, your thousand-year view. Tell me it's going to be okay. Remind me you made it through, and we will too. Teach me to breathe. Last but not least, I received a truly extraordinary video from Rita Dove in response to the personal update questions I gave her. The video is 13 minutes long and will be posted to the Commonplace Vimeo channel. I urge you to watch the whole thing. When Rita speaks extemporaneously, it's as if she's speaking in essay form. The essay form as I want the form to be. Exploratory, brave, Intimate, kind. Hi, this is Rita Dove, and I'm giving you my personal update. Uh, Rachel was kind enough to provide a, a group of questions. 
uh, that would serve as prompts for this. And so I'm going to kind of conduct a, a self-interview because I find these prompts so so interesting and so good. I am home. I am home in Charlottesville, Virginia with my husband, Fred. Uh, we managed to get home after a, a, a really epic 36-hour road trip from Arizona where we had been visiting our daughter and celebrating our granddaughter's sixth birthday uh, at the very beginning of March. And as things began to look dire, we knew we had to leave and luckily we were driving and we just drove without a stop except for a three-hour nap on the way. Had packed sandwiches and just kept going. We wanted to be home. I wanted to be home. Now, as a writer, of course, being in self-isolation is less um, of, a, of a disturbance or less of a, of a, of a, of a change in routine. Uh, in fact, uh, with the advent of Zoom meetings and things like that, sometimes being this isolated and this socially distanced can be a real boon for the writing. What is difficult, however, and I'm a naturally introspective person, I'm actually a very introverted person who had to learn to speak in front of people. So to withdraw into my own uh, personal castle keep, we could say, is uh, a blessed state for me. But what is odd is that the entire world has now self-isolated. The entire world is experiencing uh, introspection. And that is a very strange thing. It kind of throws all the rhythm off. The world is not going on as usual while I am writing. The world is doing the same thing that I am. They have pulled in. That is different. I am a very, very, very nocturnal person. My husband, thank goodness, is as well. In uh, ideal situations, we love to work from up until about 6 a.m. And uh, when I am teaching, of course, I've got to set alarms and everything for afternoon classes, and I try to cut it back to 4 a.m. Now with the pandemic and with time being such a very strange time, no time thing, uh, I find that I'm staying up even later so that I'm going to bed at about 8 a.m. And I find it immensely reassuring to see that the sun has decided to show up again for another day. That may be a clue as to part of my, what you could say, emotional, psychological state is in this pandemic. I am not depressed. I am not even sad, but I am tentative, let's just say that. And it's as if I am unsure of what is going to happen in the natural world. I'm not talking about the world of, of human beings, since obviously that has changed, changed radically. And I don't believe that it's going to uh, go back to um, business as usual as we come back from other kinds of things. This is very different. But, but emotionally or psychologically, I feel uh, that uh, time is a plane that I can walk out on, a plane where I mean the flat kind of plane, you know, the meadow that you can walk out on. And I could go too far and fall off. I can come back. 
uh, it depends on the day, it depends on the hour. Now, Rachel asked me, what kinds of activities are you engaged in, both externally visible and not so externally visible? And she asked that question. She asks that question that, of course, is always hovering in the back of my mind. Are you writing? Well, a week ago I would have said, uh, I'm trying. Now I have begun to write, uh, but I am not judging it. And that is a different thing for me. I'm usually quite, I mean, I, I write many, many drafts of many poems at the same time, but I will continually go back to them and start revising. Uh, in this case, I'm doing some revising, but I'm not being judgmental because uh, I think I want to keep a record, in a way, of what's happening uh, emotionally to, to uh, all of us, and to me in particular during this time. So too much editing renders these snippets, whatever they are, it makes them too in, in what do you want to say, uh, unapproachable, not unapproachable, but unchangeable, invulnerable. And I want that vulnerability. So I've been just writing those snippets and I'm hoping that writing these snippets will help me then get back to writing the poems that I had been working on where that kind of craftsmanship that has often led me to, you know, dangerous areas and stuff that, that I can continue to do that. The challenges I find are mostly, um, I would say, psychological or interpersonal. This is another word that Rachel had brought out as a possibility. And that is because even though I like this sense of being given the right to be socially distanced and the right to to stay up at, to all at all hours. I do miss human interaction. I miss the spontaneity of being able to just get in the car, drive out, and see a friend, or talk to my students face to face instead of via email uh, or Zoom. That is a palpable this not touching others. It's a palpable absence uh, for me. I am reading a lot. That is one of the joys that I've discovered. The permission to read freely, uh, to, and to read whatever I want, whenever I want. So I find myself rediscovering the joy of reading. I think that that uh, one of the, the, the weird kind of uh, negatives that can happen when a lot of other positive happens. So let's say that, you know, in my case, it's the fact that I've become a published writer and and all of that, is that I have a lot of demands on my time and a lot of books come my way. And uh, sometimes what used to be sheer joy of reading becomes a burden because, oh, I've got to read this, I've got to write a review on this, I've got to, I should read this, uh, all of that. Now that has been kind of removed and I'm rediscovering the joy of just getting lost in a book. That's really wonderful. Um, as I said, I'm living with my husband here who is also uh, a writer and so he uh, can adjust very well too to this state. Our daughter lives with her wife and child in Arizona. They are teachers, university professors, 
and are coping with homeschooling of a six-year-old, uh, which is difficult, I think, but they're managing that well. I do not have any direct care-taking um, responsibilities. My father is very old. He's 98, and he's living in Ohio. My brother, who is two years older than I am, is the chief caregiver, and I find myself doing this kind of a, a, a vicarious uh, remote caregiving in that I will talk with my brother nearly every night and try to give him some kind of emotional support. But this is uh, caregiving at a distance and it's very, very uh, draining and upsetting. I can only imagine though how it is for him. Um, so I'm checking in with him regularly as I am with my other uh, family members, my sisters. Uh, I, Rachel asks if anything good has come out of it for me and, and I think I have touched upon things that are good that have come out of it. I don't, and I don't think any of us can know what good is going to come out of this until we're out of this. Um, but there have been moments of grace. There have been moments where I have looked and felt like, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky to be living at this moment into feeling what life is feeling what life is like at the moment. In other words, to be so aware of being in the here and now. That's something that the COVID-19 virus has uh, imposed upon us in a way. But if one can embrace living in the moment, there is a feeling of consciousness that uh, so often I've been too busy to be aware of before. Now, Rachel does ask if I think that things will go back to how things were before. And then she poses this wonderful question, do you want them to? Well, a lot of talk has been swirling around about things will never be the same today. The world has changed now uh, forever. And there is some truth to that. I do think that we've never experienced anything like this before and we probably never uh, you know, that the, the world will never come snap back to what it was before. But human beings being human beings, they will for, try to forget about uh, these feelings that we had during the pandemic, which is why I'm writing those snippets and not revising them. Uh, and it's a part of our self-preservation. But um, hopefully, and I do hope, that there will be regulations that we'll be reminded of how precarious things are and we'll take steps to try to protect the environment because it is kind of amazing that you can hear the birds again, that the waters are clearing up again, that the sky is being kind of cleared of pollution. And that's a, a gift that we should not squander, a gift in the midst of all of this we should not squander. The last question that, that Rachel posed was, are there any routines or new practices I've found that have helped me cope? And I, I, I suppose the only practice that I can think of or articulate that has helped me cope is in a way a, a non-practice. It is allowing myself, giving myself permission to drift. I am a very, very organized person usually and I am often hyper uh, hard on myself in terms of sticking to routines, 
getting things done on time, you know, and dotting all my I's and crossing my T's. Uh, it is, in a sense, a, a return to childhood when those kind of things did not matter. To be forced now not to have these kinds of deadlines. And so I have been trying to drift and to say, okay, if I don't do this today, I can do it tomorrow or the next day or who knows, next week, whatever a week means these days. That is an odd kind of non-routine, but for me, it's been important. And I hope that wherever all of you are, whatever you are doing, that you are gleaning some moments of grace from this situation. This has been episode 88 of Commonplace, the third in our special series of Global Roll Call episodes. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Zucker, Jay Hammond, Doreen Wang, Christine LaRusso, and was sound edited by me and Jay Hammond. Music for today's episode is by Ken Moshesh, featuring Jay Hammond on guitar, Danny Gruen on trombone, and Dorian Lee Perriot II on tuba. Ken Moshesh is a musician, housing rights activist, and former Sun Ra Orchestra member, raised in Oakland, California, and living in Durham, North Carolina. To support his music, please consider purchasing directly at kenmoshesh1.bandcamp.com slash music. Many thanks to Rescue Press, Basic Books, and Princeton University Press. Some of the presses who are normally enthusiastically generous in their book donations to the Commonplace Book Club don't have access to their stock and are unable to send out copies. I want to take this opportunity to thank all the publishers, especially the small independent publishers who are struggling right now. Many thanks as well to Omain Gruich for transcribing this and other episodes of Commonplace. I wish you all drift, creative space, creative spark, rest, reading, writing, making, planting, moving, stillness, health, strength, safety, and love. Take care, and thank you for listening. Thank you.